Are you looking for a way to save a little money? What about getting your subscriptions under control? If so, then I've got just the solution for you. Rocket Money. With the help of Rocket Money, I was able to find a subscription that I completely forgot to cancel before the free trial was up. I'm sure you've all been there. And Rocket Money can help me cancel it. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting and kids subscriptions, it's hard to keep track of exactly what you're spending and how much it all adds up to each and every month. Not to mention the fact that it seems every single day one of those subscriptions suddenly jumps up in price. Rocket Money alerts you when this happens so you're never caught unawares. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With them, I can see clearly what my monthly spending is and how it compares to the month before, making saving money and taking control over my finances so much easier. They'll also try to negotiate lowering your bills up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. A mentor is someone, usually a good someone, who you can look up to. On October 13th, 1902, a man was born who would despite his many crimes, become a mentor to one of history's most infamous outlaws. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Harry Pierpont, Pete to those who knew him, was born on October 13, 1902 in Muncie, Indiana. After living a fairly normal childhood, Pete, who was described as having an above-average intelligence and did well in school, suffered from an accident in 1921 in which he received a very serious head injury. From that moment on, there was a sudden shift within the young man, who, in addition to a completely different demeanor, suffered from eye problems, dizziness, headaches, sleeplessness, and mania. Potentially as a result of these changes, 1921 was also the same year that he was arrested for the first time after being caught with a concealed weapon. And after 10 days in jail, he was dismissed and shortly thereafter committed to a state hospital for some time. Diagnosed with dementia precox of the hebephrenic type, 
Pete was later released, and on January 2nd, 1922, he stole a vehicle in Indianapolis and drove to Greencastle, where he robbed a local hardware store and took nine handguns with him. Arrested five days later for an attempted auto theft and battery with the intent to kill after wounding the couple whom he stole the car from, only to be hit over the head with a roast that the wife was carrying, Pete was held in jail in Terre Haute, where he tried and failed to escape by sawing through the bars of his cell. On March 12, 1922, he was sent to the Indiana Reformatory for a 2-14 to year sentence was transferred to the newly built Pendleton Reformatory in November of 1923, and the following May was denied clemency by Indiana's governor at the time. Described by the superintendent of the prison as, quote, wild as a March hare, Peter's mother, Lena, often visited to speak with the man in charge and plead with him to give mercy to her son. Claiming he was insane and should not be held accountable for his actions, her request was finally granted on March 6, 1924. After his release, Pete moved to Clay County, where his family relocated during his stint in prison, and pretty much immediately immersed himself with a seedy group of men and was known to associate with several known bank robbers. In fact, he himself may have actually robbed the Sour Wine Theater in Brazil, Indiana, not long after his arrival. In November of 1924, he was living in Kokomo, was staying in a boarding house run by Pearl Elliott, and was neck deep in a world of crime and nefarious associations. Given his new group of friends, it was no shock when, on November 26, 1924, at around 2.45 p.m., a group of seven men, run by Pete Pierpont, walked into the South Marion State Bank, held everyone at gunpoint, and walked away with about $4,000. Thankfully, no shots were fired and no one was injured. But given the efficiency in which they committed the crimes, newspapers and law enforcement officials theorized the bank was studied and cased for quite a while before the crime actually took place. Speeding off in a Nash motor car and heading south, as the group made their getaway, many wondered if they were the same group of bandits who robbed the Farmers National Bank in Converse just a week before. While locals scratched their heads and tried to identify the culprits, on December 16, 1924, the men made a much less successful attempt to rob the Citizens State Bank. While they held everyone at gunpoint, the bank president bravely and discreetly pressed a button on the floor that would sound the alarm. Sent running and speeding off in a Cadillac, the bandits walked away empty-handed. About a week later, on December 22, 1924, a group of men walked into the John D. Shelby hardware store in Lebanon and robbed them of two rifles, two double-barreled shotguns, a hammerless double-barrel shotgun, a Marlin repeating rifle, two Remington repeating rifles, eight pocket knives, a six-inch barreled pistol, a German 32 caliber automatic revolver, 50 boxes of ammunition, four flashlights, and several batteries. With the Boone County Sheriff notifying the Grant County Sheriff of all the items stolen, as well as the fact that the robbers were driving a Moon sedan and its license plate number, one that had been stolen the night of the Lebanon robbery, Everyone was on the lookout for the brazen bandits who seemed to be escalating by the day. Proving that point, on December 23, 1924, at 3.45 p.m., 
six of the men entered the Upland State Bank and after attempting to lock the cashier and a female employee in the bank vault, began scooping up all the cash they could carry, about $2,500 worth, ran to their waiting vehicle and sped off towards the West. What they didn't know at the time was that, in addition to having that license plate number from the day before, the men had spoken to two deputy sheriffs about an hour or so before the robbery, whilst filling up at a gas station on Highland Avenue. With a detailed description of the bandits and that plate number, the men were noticed driving in Marion the wrong way around the public square. With the plate matching the same one that had been in town about a week before and had run a stop sign and failed to stop when called on by the police, other officers in other counties were notified. And before long, the car was connected to a series of bank robberies all over the state of Indiana. Unfortunately, when the car was found in Kempton, Indiana on December 27th, the men were nowhere to be found. Officers soon learned that the car had gotten stuck in some mud at 7.30 p.m. on December 23rd. And abandoning their getaway car, the men went to a local home and called a garage for help. Carrying a plethora of guns, the men asked the garage worker to take them to Frankfurt, Indiana before changing their mind and asking to be dropped off at the edge of Lebanon. They then told the man that they had been out hunting and were from Louisville, Kentucky. No one ever came to pick up the car and eventually the police were called about the whole ordeal. The discovery of the car marked a major shift in the gang's plans when, beginning on December 27, 1924, various members started getting arrested and convicted for the bank robberies. The last one to be arrested was, of course, Peter Pierpont himself but not before he managed to get in a few more scores. Shortly before 4 p.m. on March 10, 1925, four masked bandits walked into the New Harmony Bank and Trust and managed to grab about $10,000 in cash and bonds. When the bank treasurer, Frank Steelman, failed to open the safe fast enough for the men, he was hit over the head with the butt of a gun and suffered from a severe scalp injury. And when the assistant cashier finally did open the safe, she promptly fainted. Leaving behind the injured and the others who had been locked away in the safe, the men jumped into a gray Hudson sedan and sped off towards Evansville. Having been seen in Wadesville, a farmer near Griffin, Indiana, reported that the men held him up and demanded he tell them where they could get a boat so they could cross the Wabash River. They were spotted again the following day in King, Indiana, and after peace officers wired a detailed description of each man all throughout the Midwest, guards were placed along every road in Southern Indiana with orders to, quote, shoot to kill. On March 22nd, Earl Northern and Everett Bridgewater were arrested in Kokomo on suspicion of possessing a stolen car. And though their possession was later found to be legitimate and they were released, the car itself was later identified as the same one used in the getaway from one of the various robberies. Hearing the news of the arrests, Pete Pierpont, along with a man named Dewey Elliott and Pearl Mullendore, went to visit the local attorney named C.T. Brown just after midnight on March 22nd and told him that two of his friends had been detained and that they would be needing representation. Using an alias, Pete refused to give the names of the detained men, but instead gave a gold certificate worth $100 to try and entice the lawyer. CT found out the next morning about the two men who had been picked up and later released for auto theft. 
Despite this very close call, Pete and a gang of five entered the South Side Bank in Kokomo in broad daylight and made off with $4,828.40 in cash and $4,300 in Liberty Bonds. Driving off in a Blue Moon touring car, the men thought that they were smart when they switched into two Fords and began heading south. They didn't know that the whole thing was witnessed by a local resident who reported the new vehicles to the local police. While everyone was on the lookout, the men robbed the Lakedon State Bank on March 31st, 1925, and took about $1,000 to $1,800 in cash, but left behind several thousand dollars worth of bonds. The bank's cashier gave a description of both the robbers and the car that they left in, and was able to remember the license plate number that, when run, came back as matching to a stolen Buick from Fort Wayne. On April 2nd, 1925, after years of just barely skirting around the police, Harry Pete Pierpont, along with Thaddeus Skier and his girlfriend, Louise Brunner, were arrested by the Detroit police inside of their apartment. After attempting to go by his alias, Pete later admitted to his identity and he was dubbed the leader of the bandits by each and every single one of the men and women who had already been arrested and charged with various levels of involvement. The months-long roundup of each of the bandits was reported as one of the biggest of any gang of robbers in the state's history. On May 6, 1925, Pete Pierpont took the stand and, to the shock of everyone present, admitted to all the evidence contained in Thaddeus Skier's testimony against him, but pointed the finger back at the man and claimed that he was the one who planned the entire thing. Regardless, Pete was convicted and sentenced to 10 to 21 years, along with a fine of $1,000, just a fraction of what he and his band of robbers managed to take away from the many banks that they entered. Heading to the Indiana Reformatory on May 6th, 1925, it wasn't long before Pete met the soon-to-be-infamous John Dillinger. According to the claims, Pete was the convict that Dillinger looked up to the most, but after causing so much trouble and after an attempt to drill through the bars of his cell, Pete was transferred to the Indiana State Prison within just two months. Once there, he yet again became the most well-respected convict amongst his fellow inmates, and before long, started leading his own group of former bank robbers. Pete, for the next few years, became an absolute nuisance for prison officials. Constantly trying to escape, he was sent to solitary often, and was known for his ability to withstand hunger and severe beatings. In July of 1929, John Dellinger was transferred to the same facility as Pete and once again became part of his unofficial group of bandits. With a group that included Russell Clark, Charles Mackley, and John Hamilton, John Dellinger learned all that he needed to know about bank robbery. And when he was paroled in 1933, he turned right around and put into place a plan to get Pete Pierpont out of prison. And to finance the escape, he began a series of bank robberies using a list carefully constructed for him by Pete and Charles. But before this could happen, Pete made several unsuccessful attempts to get himself and a group of other men out of prison. Like the attempt made on December 29th, 1930, in which Pete and 11 other men overpowered a guard and barricaded the doors of their cell block to prevent the others from entering. Pete, using a handmade key, let himself out of his cell just as the guard managed to sound the alarm. 
With police, firemen, and guards all responding to the call, the men were all forced to surrender. This failure led to the plan he concocted with Charles, John, and Russell, with the help of John Dillinger, of course, in what would later be the greatest prison break in Indiana history. With the promise of joining the bank robbing team and that they would include a man named James Jenkins in the escape, John did as he was commanded by his mentors. And with another man named Walter Dietrich joining the group and the help from Pete's girlfriend, Mary Kinder, in exchange for her brother, Earl Northern, to be added to the list of escapees, the plan was put into action in the spring of 1933. On September 25th, 1933, Pete Pierpont, Russell Clark, Charles Mackley, and John Hamilton all met up during an exercise period and, deciding that tomorrow was the big day, made a vow to one another that they would not be recaptured without a fight. The next morning, Pete, Russell, Charles, and John, along with Walter Dietrich, James Clark, Edward Schuess, Joseph Fox, Joe Burns, and Jim Jenkins, all escaped from the Michigan City prison using 45 caliber pistols that John Dillinger had smuggled into the jail. Telling the shirt factory superintendent, George H. Stevens, that one of the officials needed to see him in the basement, the man was overpowered by the group while Walter sought out the deputy superintendent, Albert E. Evans. Telling him that there was a fight, Albert was led straight into a trap and was beaten with pistols and clubs. With Pete causing most of the damage as a sort of revenge for the severe punishment that Albert had doled out to him over the years, Walter stopped him before he could take the man's life as another man, foreman Dudley Triplett, came down to the basement for supplies and was captured as well. Walking their hostages through the prison, they arrived at the first gate and, threatening his life, demanded a guard named Frank Swanson to unlock it. Forced to join the other hostages, they all made their way through the first and second gate. Walking up to the third, the men used a steel shaft as a battering ram, beat guard Frank Wellnitz, and forced guard Guy Burklow to open up the outer gate. Now in the lobby of the administration building, they herded the eight civilian clerks together and pushed them into the vaults. This is when 72-year-old Finley Carson was shot in the leg and shoulder by Joe Burns for not moving fast enough and around the time that Warden Lewis E. Kunkel had walked in and happened upon the prison escape. Becoming a hostage as well, once the men made it through the outer gate, rain coming down hard, they split into two groups and began fending for themselves. As the alarm sounded, the first group, which included Walter Dietrich, James Clark, Joseph Fox, and Joe Burns, encountered Sheriff Charles Neal, who had just come to drop off some prisoners at the facility. Overpowering him, they managed to make off with his weapons and forced him to drive three of them off the property. The other group with Pete Pierpont, John Hamilton, Russell Clark, Charles Mackley, Edward Schuess, and Jim Jenkins made their way to a nearby gas station where the attendant, Joe Paleski, was struck over the head, a vehicle was commandeered, and they headed west where they hid at a farmhouse. With the first group abandoning the sheriff's car but keeping him prisoner, at about midnight, Mary Kinder answered a knock at her door and found Pete standing there. She immediately began asking about her brother and found out that he was too ill and was in the infirmary when the escape took place. Despite her disappointment, she arranged for a place for each of the escapees, 
in the home of her reluctant boyfriend, Ralph Saffel, around the time that former accomplice, Pearl Elliott, showed up with all of the money collected to fund the prison break. Just as the convicts were planning to branch off and begin their bank robbing ways once again, news spread that John Dillinger had been arrested in Dayton, Ohio, just four days before their escape. Detained in the Allen County Jail in Lima, the group made plans to free their accomplice. The next night, the gang was joined by Harry Copeland, John's former partner prior to his arrest, who told them that there was a house arranged for them in Hamilton, Ohio, but that it would not be ready for a few days. Hiding out temporarily at the farm of Pete's parents, while in Hamilton, he realized that he needed more money to help John's escape. So Charles Mackley suggested that they rob the First National Bank in his hometown of St. Mary's, Ohio. They did so on October 3rd. On October 10th, they brought John's girlfriend to Ohio. And on the 11th, the men all left for Lima. Using the girlfriend to gain entry, claiming she was John Dillinger's sister, Pete and Russell Clark approached a local attorney and asked to arrange a visit for her. Saying he needed to talk to the sheriff the next day, they put their plan into motion fast, and Pete, Charles, and James all entered the jail at 625, while Edward, John, and Harry Copeland acted as lookouts. Claiming to be Indiana State Prison officials looking to return John Dillinger to Indiana, Sheriff Jess Sarber requested to see their credentials, and Pete, acting fast, pulled out his gun and pulled the trigger twice. He and Charles began beating the man while demanding the keys to John's cell. The sheriff refused, but his wife quickly dug the keys out of the drawer and handed them over to stop the beating. John Dillinger was freed. The sheriff's wife and a deputy Wilbur Sharp were all locked in a cell, and Sheriff Jess Sarber laid there until his death 90 minutes later. When news of John's escape spread, suspicion immediately fell on Pete Pierpont. In hopes of causing friction between the members, authorities started to refer to the group in the media as the Dillinger Gang instead of the Pierpont Gang. Pete, completely unfazed, was more than happy to let John take the credit. They continued their crimes, committing police station raids, the robbery of the Central National Bank in Greencastle, Indiana, and another at the American Bank and Trust Company in Racine, Wisconsin. Around that time, publicity and unwanted attention was spreading so rapidly that the gang went to hide out in Daytona Beach, Florida. Then came another robbery at the First National Bank in Indiana, which ended in gunfire and almost cost John Dillinger his life and allowed him to take the life of another. But this near miss did lead to yet another hideaway, this time in Arizona, and several small mistakes that would lead to their inevitable arrest on January 25th 1934. Extradited back to the Midwest, Pete Pierpont was, along with several other members of their gang, convicted of murder and sentenced to death. John Dillinger managed to break out of jail on March 3, 1934, and worried he would try to break out his friends and mentor, extra precautions were taken to keep them all locked up safe. John never showed up for them, and instead teamed up with Babyface Nelson. He would later die at the hands of the FBI on July 22nd, 1934, having been the first ever public enemy number one. The man who made Dillinger the criminal that he was, Harry Pete Pierpont, after a failed prison escape and being shot in the process, was executed at the Ohio Penitentiary 
on October 17, 1934. Still suffering from injuries from the shootout, he had to be carried to the electric chair. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear a terrible thing happened on October 14th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.